Good morning, everyone. Everyone well? Everyone doing good? Do you remember when it was sunny, like two days ago? Um, yeah, I, um, I loved it when it was um, sunny, tanning in February. Um, so I went to the shop, and I thought I'd add a bit of color to my wardrobe. Um, for those listening on the podcast, I've switched my usual black sweater for a gray one. Um, <laughs> that's about as colorful as I get. Um, I'll t- I actually really enjoyed the worship and what we've been um, looking at. Um, today already just what God seems to be doing and I think um, in, a, in a bit I'm going to share my story with you, um, my story of what Jesus did in my life and I think it's just going to tie in with what God's already doing. But um, just to begin a recap of what we're, what we're doing in this series seven, um, in John's gospel, John, um, one of Jesus' disciples records some of these events but he's quite um, selective in how he's sharing these events and he calls these um, seven moments signs. He doesn't just call them miracles. They are Jesus performing a miracle, but he doesn't just call them miracles because it's not the immediate face value of what's happening that is important. Um, They're a sign because they're pointing towards something else. So at the back, we've got a fire exit sign. Um, That sign is irrelevant if that's just a brick wall. Uh, Because that sign is pointing towards something else. It's not what's happening that is the thing, but it's what it's trying to show us. And John is being very selective. He later writes, I could have written loads of things about what Jesus did. And if I did, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books I would have to write. Um, of course, it was before Wikipedia. But, um, so he's chosen seven signs, seven being a very significant number in Jewish culture. It's the number that signifies completion. And these signs show us more of who Jesus is. And they point towards this reality which is breaking through, this reality which Jesus called the kingdom of God. And so the reason why these signs are still relevant to us today, some 2,000 years later, is because this kingdom is still breaking through. Alex reminded us that it's called the eschatological inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. What it means is the kingdom is coming through in our midst, and it has life-changing possibilities for us here today. And so Alex Our vicar spoke about freedom. Catherine, our vicar in training, spoke about um, comfort, peace in the middle of the storm. And today we're looking at the first of these seven signs. So if you have a Bible in front of you or if you've got an app, and of course you can look on the screen, but we're looking um, at the first of these signs where Jesus turns water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests are too drunk. But you have saved the best until now. And then this is the really key verse. 
for understanding the series that we're doing here. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. I wonder if you're trying to live up to any expectations and perhaps you're putting these expectations on yourself. They're things you hope to achieve. You perhaps have one year, two year, five year goals. Or perhaps you have a certain idea of yourself, um, and particularly in a certain situation, and you expect yourself to be consistent in, those ex- in, in your own expectations of yourself. I've got a lot of sporty friends, a lot of great sporty friends, um, but even if we're going to be in a competition with each other, I expect myself to at least finish in the top three, if not always take the gold. <laughs> I don't know how often you <laughs> measure up to your own expectations. I love, I don't know if you've seen these um, nailed it memes, memes where um, people try to recreate something that they've seen online, but the results are hilarious. Check um, this one out here. Yeah, nailed it. Uh, this next one. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. Expectation versus reality. There's loads of this stuff online. Do check it out afterwards. And then there are, of course, the expectations that people put on us. And that could come from our parents, our bosses, our friends, or just people who depend on us. Sometimes their expectations seem reasonable, and sometimes they seem completely unrealistic. The context of the sign, the story that we've read about, the context is a wedding. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding... Um, It might have been 40 minutes to an hour long, and then there was a reception and a party, but it was all wrapped up within one day. Well, in Jesus' time, weddings were so much more extra. They could last um, up to a week, this whole wedding, and it was the responsibility of the groom to make sure that there was enough wine to last the wedding. Um, Enough wine that even if guests turned up two or three days into the wedding, they would have an expectation that there would still be something for them to drink. So this huge cultural expectation. And if the groom didn't match up, meet that expectation, you know, kind of like you had one job, um, if they didn't do that, then he would be liable to being sued by his (laughs) mother-in-law. Fact. True story. And we have so many cultural expectations put on us as well. Expectations to be a certain way. Expectations to act a certain way. To achieve a certain level of success. And and those expectations change between home or or work life. Even within church or when we're in school, college, university. It's all around us. And subconsciously, actually, we want to meet those expectations. Because as humans, we're driven by this need for connection. And so we think, well, if I want to connect, we sometimes assume that that means I, well, I need to fit in. I need to meet these expectations. And if not checked, I think these can breed two things in our life. I think the first is fear. A fear that we won't meet those expectations. So actually, we then become driven by fear. This obsession to just not fall short, to not fail, to not let people down, to not come across or be a failure. Do all it takes to avoid not meeting those expectations. Fear, firstly. And then secondly, well, what happens after all this striving from fear? What happens when we inevitably run out of steam or we don't quite meet expectations or we don't have enough wine for the party? Well, we experience shame. I'm just not good enough. 
And it's a cycle. It's a cycle that goes round. Fear and shame will be the reason we have such high work rates, but an equal level of burnout. Low self-esteem and not much joy in our life. It's a cycle because they both feed each other. By operating from a place of fear, we tell ourselves to just keep going, keep going, and it will be all right. And then if it isn't, we tell ourselves, oh, it doesn't matter. I was never good enough anyway. That's just the way it is for me. And then that feeling of shame then perpetuates, it validates, no, that's not the right word, is it? Validates. Um, Validate, we'll take that off the recording. We'll cut it there, we'll cut it there, and we'll go, shame validates the behavior of fear in our lives. And we just say, remember what happened last time. Make sure you don't mess it up this time. And it starts again, this cycle. So what we need is, we need a new cycle. A cycle that's going to bring self-worth, a cycle that's going to bring joy in our life. One where what we do or what we avoid doing isn't coming from a place of fear. I believe we find that in Jesus. And so firstly, in Jesus, instead of fear, we can experience freedom. One of the things that I fear on a daily basis is, um, which might seem quite small to you, but um, it's annoying people. Not People are not, you know, I don't fear people who are annoying. I, I, I fear being that person. I fear coming across as an annoying person. And it mainly comes through in kind of the area of teaching um, and particularly in sports. So naturally, I love to teach. I love to let people know, Here, here's how you can do this better. Here's how, you know, if you just stood in a, a better position and you, and you did this. And so any sport, I love to teach. And you're thinking, I never want to play sport with Matt. Um, I have got loads better at this. But some years ago, I wasn't so good. But it's now meant that actually I, I, I hold back offering advice or help in those situations for fear of coming across as that guy. Um, my wife Fiona and I have tried to play sports together um, and we try to exercise together as well but because of my helpful teaching <laughs> tendencies um, once we had to abandon the squash court because I couldn't keep my thoughts to myself on how she could improve her serve um, <laughs> we've had um, full-blown arguments during a work workout DVD my, fa <laughs> my favorite one was when we once went running together and um, we had been running for about 20 minutes, half an hour, and we were coming towards the end of the run, and Fiona was just kind of getting into running, and I was being encouraging, going on side. She, she said, I'm going to make it to that post, and then we'll stop. Now, my intention was to be encouraging in this moment. And I just said to Fiona, no, no, you can go further. And then she just st immediately stopped running and said, well, if you're going to be like that, we're never going running again. <laughs> Like I said, I've got so much better at it, but I still might not offer. I, I, can't, I still hold back for fear of coming across annoying. And sometimes you'll just see me standing on the edge of like, um, like, a, like a game that's going on. My arms folded and um, I'm, trying to, I'm internalizing. If I was asked for help, <laughs> this is what I would say. Uh, this is... <laughs> Just this week, um, the, the, the team here, the staff and, and our interns and, and everyone, we went away for a couple days uh, for some training and uh, for a bit of retreat as well. We played a lot of spike ball, uh, this amazing, amazing game. And Jess, uh, our, she runs all our comms, she designs the things that you see. Jess came up to me and she said, Matt, what do I need to do to become better at spike ball? And I was like a dove released from a cage. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to be annoying because my, my, 
advice, my help has been willingly asked for, and I willingly obliged. And Jess was probably the most improved player of those two days. She's, she's, she's really good now. Um, full credit to Jess and me. Um, because when we live from a place of freedom instead of fear, we, we open up. We live fuller lives. We can take more risks. We can give more of ourselves in our relationships and in our work. We have more to offer. Living from fear closes us off. We're less likely to take risks. We're less likely to open up for fear of rejection or for fear of disappointing someone because we haven't met their expectations of who we are. I have this incredible fear of missing out. I always want to be involved. I also have a fear of running out, running out of steam, running out of patience, running out of petrol, which is another contention in our marriage. I like to leave it to one bar. Fiona leaves it till half full before refilling. I'm worried that I won't be enough for the role that I play here at church. I'm terrified that I'm going to exhaust my ability as a worship leader and as a musician. One Sunday, I'm just going to turn up and suddenly I won't know how to sing or play guitar. That's a big fear of mine. And don't get me started about my fear of parenting. Man, like running out of patience with my son or understanding or all of these things. And they're always going to be there in some form or another. And I could allow those fears to take control, to take over. But instead, Jesus wants us to live from a place of freedom. Freedom comes when we experience the love of God. John, in another book that he writes, he says, There is no fear in love, for, perf- uh, for perfect love casts out fear. And so our freedom is found in Jesus, God who is love. With God, you don't need to question whether you're valued or whether you're appreciated or whether you're wanted, whether your voice matters, whether your thoughts matter, whether your advice or your help matters, because you matter to God who doesn't just want you to live a life of fear, but wants you to live in the freedom of that love. And so in Jesus, instead of fear, we can experience freedom. And secondly, in Jesus, instead of shame, we can experience acceptance. As I said, shame is on the other side of those fears. You know, we fear that something might happen or might not go as we planned or might not meet our expectations. And... If that then happens, shame is there to meet us on the other side of our fears, when our fears become our reality. Researcher and author Brene Brown uh, says this in her book, Dare to Lead. She says, all of these situations lead to the biggest threat to our sense of self-worth, shame. And then this is how uh, Brene Brown defines shame. She says, shame is the feeling that washes over us and makes us feel so flawed that we question whether we're worthy of love belonging or connection not to be confused with guilt shame is so powerful actually guilt can be can be helpful actually like by guilt I mean that conviction you have that you've done something wrong and if you respond well to guilt you can you can change your behavior or you can make a better decision or you can do something different guilt guilt says I did something wrong I did something bad Whereas shame doesn't say, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. I am a bad person. I used to live with a lot of shame. I was always so fearful of being, uh, being alone. Growing up, I had to be in a relationship. And there were all these um, expectations um, on me, from me, and from others, from the church I was growing up in, from, from my home life, but particularly expectations from 
friends and people at school, um, I'd, almost, I'd built this brand of who Matt Bray was, this confident, this funny, this outgoing person, this outgoing kind of guy. But behind all of that, all the stuff I was fronting, behind all of that was a deeply insecure person. And I feared being found out I, because I basically believed myself to be a fake. And despite this fear of um, being alone, you know, always needing to be in a relationship, I was actually a serial cheater. I ruined relationship after relationship. I wasn't kind to my family. I was selfish. I was manipulative. And then it all began to unravel when I was around 19. I was found out. And I was shamed as a, as a fake, as a failure, as a cheat. And my actions led to guilt, which then led to this downward spiral towards shame during that time of my life. I sound like a pretty fun guy, don't I? <laughs> In our story, Jesus is at this wedding, and fear their fears have become reality. They ran out of wine, and no doubt Jesus wasn't the first to find out. I'm sure there were lots of rumors, um, lots of murmurs, lots of the rumor mill beginning to circulate, people pointing the finger as to whose fault it was. And if Jesus hadn't performed this miracle, I'm sure the groom would have carried that with him for the rest of his life. Everyone there, including his wife, all his friends, he would have been known as No Wine Nigel. <laughs> and he would have that name hanging over him for the rest of his life. And you might have something similar hanging over you as well. That thing that happened once that, that's come to define you. It could have been a huge thing. Quite often it's more subtle it's just an offhand comment that someone's made about something that you did, and you just can't seem to shake it off. No wine, Nigel. But Jesus did get involved. And when Jesus involves himself in your life, you don't need to fear and you don't need to experience shame. He says something actually very different about you. He says that you are loved, you are valued, you are worthy, and you are accepted. That's what Jesus says. John's gospel is, is incredibly um, interesting. At least I've, I've found it quite interesting because he's being very um, clever with what he's doing. And I'm going to race through this next bit because I, it leads me nicely to what I want to say. But um, it's a bit of information. But the bit that we read started on the third day. And we could just skate over that and not, not recognize it. But if you were to look back, if you had a Bible and you look back, you would see that lots of paragraphs started on the next day or and then on the next day, the next day, um, if you were to count up those days, you'd realize that this first of seven signs happens on day seven. And actually, if you looked even further back, you would see John starts his whole gospel in the beginning. And in the beginning is how the whole Bible starts. Back in Genesis, when God created the world in the beginning in seven days. And so John is being clever because he's saying, Jesus, just as he was involved in the creation of the world, he's now creating something new around himself. He's doing something different. He's doing something new. And so what is it that Jesus is doing new when he's turning water into wine? Well, look even deeper into Genesis. The world is created. Adam and Eve, these two figures representing the first people on earth, they live in this garden they get tempted, they eat fruit that God told them not to, and they feel guilty. They experience guilt for the first time in their life. And then it says, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. They felt shame. 
And so they tried to hide. They were exposed, so they tried to cover themselves up. Jesus turns up at a wedding to perform his first sign. Shame is knocking on the door, and he, Jesus doesn't come to expose their shame. Jesus doesn't come to hide their shame. Jesus doesn't even come to cover it up. Jesus comes to take shame away. And instead, offer us the experience of love and acceptance. And that's where I ended up, eventually. To begin with, it got a lot worse. I got to the point where I had so much shame that I hated myself. I, I hated who I was. And I, um, I, w I felt physically sick because of, of the things I did and the, the way I treated people. I would look in the mirror and I'd feel physically sick at my own reflection. And so I felt physically sick, so I would begin to make myself sick as well. And I had so much hate and anger boiling up inside me that as well as making myself sick, I would also self-harm. And I would go in my room and I, um, I would grab like a pair of scissors or something or a, or a knife and I would just begin to make these scars on my forearm. I've still, I've still got these scars. I just needed a release. I needed some kind of outlet for this pain, this anger that I was feeling. And I thought, well, I've caused so much pain to the people around me. Why not myself? And the turning point was this interaction I had with my dad. I was in my room and I just finished giving myself another scar. Turned out to be my last one. But I just heard this knock on my door because my dad was walking past my room and he just felt God's spirit prompt him to say something to me. And so he knocked, knocked on my door, popped his head around and he just said, Matt, whatever you've done, we will always love you. And I said, yeah, cool, thanks. <laughs> and he shut the door and I just burst into tears. And I made this connection. Because that's my, that's my dad and my dad's great. But he, he'll experience fear and shame in his life as well. But I made this connection that it's even more significant that my father in heaven says exactly the same thing to me as well. And God means it. Jesus died to prove it. And in that moment, honestly, in that moment, my shame was no longer there. I was no longer Matt the fake, Matt the failure, but I was Matt the forgiven, Matt the loved, the accepted. No wine Nigel became best wine Barry. <laughs> Jesus turned water into wine to do for something to do for someone what they couldn't do for themselves saving them from embarrassment and the poss the possibility of shame and it's entirely possible that Jesus can perform a miracle in your life so that you can know true freedom true love true acceptance and forgiveness Jesus comes not to expose our shame but to take it away he redefines our identity by speaking over us, words of life, encouragement, forgiveness, and acceptance. And if we live in that cycle, living from a place of freedom because, well, shame's not waiting for the other side of us. The open arms of God are waiting for us on the other side. And then actually, if I live in that identity of being loved, knowing that I'm loved, knowing that I'm accepted, 
I can live freely. And the cycle begins again. Amen.